Well, good morning. It's kind of a gray and dismal day here near my house. I don't know how your morning looks, but I am looking forward to spending a little bit of time with you. We've got uh, a uh, opportunity to look at another hero of the faith, and today it's a lady, so I'm excited about it. Hope you have a cup of coffee handy or your libation of choice, and uh, you'll be able to let me know you're out there so we can get started and enjoy our time together. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, studying for this series and uh, am finding a lot of joy in reading all these biographies and the statements and uh, stories and snippets of their own biography, autobiographies. So uh, I hope that it's uh, been a blessing to all of you. So we're ready to start number five. And our sojourner uh, of the week is Corey Ten Boom. Um, I, I don't know how many of you know anything about my, uh, my childhood, but between the summer of my junior and senior year in high school, uh, my dad, being in the military, was transferred to uh, to a uh, was transferred to a, a location in Great Britain. And uh, the first half of my senior year, I went to a, a British grammar school. And the second half of my senior year, I was at an American boarding school north of London. When it came time for college, we chose. Um, a school, the University of Maryland, had a campus in Munich, Germany for military kids or diplomatic kids that lived all over the world. And so I had a chance to go for my first two years of college uh, in Munich. Um, as a young 17-year-old, that first year in, in school, I had a chance to go on, a, I don't think you'd call it a field trip. It was a an opportunity for there to be some thinking. At any rate, we were able to visit um, Dachau. Uh, Dachau is a uh, concentration camp, a German concentration camp just outside of Munich. Um, when we arrived at Dachau, we got off the bus and we were allowed to just take our personal time to, to work through the facility. Um, first thing I came to was the uh, the concrete pads where all the dormitories were. It had been liberated, I don't know, 21 for that. So the wooden dormitories were all torn down and just the pads were there. But I could stand on that pad having seen all kinds of pictures and imagine exactly what it was like crowding all of those uh, people uh, into those uh, bunks. Um, they were just slats and they would crowd people in there as if they were um, pieces of, I don't know, cargo. Um, I stood on those slats for a while and tried to absorb that, that picture. And then I went walking. I, I came to the back portion of Dachau and there were the gas uh, showers. And I remember how profound it was for me to stand in that, in that room and think what it was that those people were thinking about uh, just prior to their being gassed. Then I left the, the gas room and wandered a little further and I came to some, some brick furnaces, some ovens. And uh, 
it made a profound impact on me as I stood looking at those. But I remember walking and when I got around the corner, one of the ovens was small. It wasn't very long, others. And it took my mind a little while to catch up to try to think through what it was I was actually looking at. When it dawned on me that this was an oven for, for children, it just overwhelmed me. I remember collapsing onto the, to the grass there in front of it and just sobbing. The stories about um, the brutal murders of six million Jews, and there were gypsies and other groups in there as well, associated with all of the concentration camps and the inhumane treatment for these people during World War II, they ought to, they ought to bother us. And with that same passion that they disturb us, we ought, to, we ought to be encouraged when we hear stories of those who did something about it. And that's the story for our, our Sojourner lesson today. It's the story of Corey Tin Boone. Um, I love her story because it's not perfect. She wasn't perfect. Um, if you read her book, The Hiding Place, and I highly recommend it, um, you're going to see a growth, a development. You're going to see her become an incredible leader for Christ. But but she she had her foibles and she struggled and she went up and then down and then up again. And her story is profound. She was born on April 15th in uh, 1892. She's the youngest of five children. Um, and she was uh, given quite a name at birth. Listen to this. Cornelia Arnolda Johanna Tinboom. Tinboom means the last tree. So at some point, her family lived on a road by the last tree. But she was always known as Corey. Her mom died pretty early on from a cerebral hemorrhage. Her, her, a cerebral hemorrhage. And uh, so Corey was raised by her father, guy by the name of Casper and three maternal aunts that lived with her family. She had um, uh, four siblings, one of whom uh, died at birth. She had two older sisters, uh, Betsy and Noli. I love that name, Noli, um, and a brother named Wilhelm. Um, they all lived just outside of Amsterdam in the Netherlands in a small village uh, where her dad made a living as a jeweler uh, and, a, and a watchmaker. Corey's first job was to, to caretake the home, uh, but she didn't much like, like cooking and cleaning, and she, uh, she worked a deal with her older sister, Betsy, that they would switch, and Corey would begin to work in the shop with her dad. Uh, she was a great bookkeeper, but also had a real um, propensity to do well with her hands, as a matter of fact, she was the very first woman to become licensed as a watchmaker in the Netherlands. Um, spiritually, their family were very strong Calvins, Calvinistic family. They were uh, very active in the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, they had a heart for, for people that were, were uh, struggling, that had less than they did. Um, the family took in... Uh, foster kids from missionaries that were serving all around the world. Um, they served uh, people around, for example, a nursing home. Uh, they, they took responsibilities at the nursing home 
for people that didn't have any family in the area. And in particular, and this fascinates me, in particular, this Dutch reformed, uh, very strongly, they had a heart for the Jewish community all around them. Her grandfather, as a matter of fact, held a, a once a week in, in his home and, and specifically would pray for the souls of, of the Jewish people around them. They believed that the Jews were, were God's chosen people and they wanted to honor them. And they took every opportunity to provide for them. And as the, as the conditions uh, before the war and then during the war uh, tightened down on the Jewish uh, community around them, they began to provide food for them, uh, shared their ration cards, gave them money whenever they can, wherever they could. It was interesting that it, it kind of naturally became a, a, a thing for her family to get involved with the Dutch resistance. Um, they they uh, began to have relationships uh, with those that were, were resisting the Nazis, so much so that the resistance sent an architect to their home. And he went in and designed a, a false room. It was actually off of Corey's bedroom with a, a very well-hidden door. And uh, then they needed a ventilation system, so he designed that. And at any given time, six adults could hide in there uh, for their own protection until they could move them along in the resistance system. Corey organized a youth club for girls, including the Jewish girls, taught practical classes of sewing and cooking, but also uh, gave them a, an opportunity to explore the arts and then taught them Bible. Um, the house had a, had a buzzer system so that if someone that shouldn't be there, the buzzer would be pushed and anyone that was in the house could find a, a corner in that, in that uh, hidden away secret to be protected from the Nazis. It's true that the Tin Booms gave of their own uh, resources, finances, food, and so on, but it became clear after a while that they needed some additional resources. So one day, Corey was uh, visiting with a civil servant. It was time to get the ration cards for her family. And uh, she was fully prepared to answer the question. And the guy said, well, how many are in your family? To say five. But when she opened her mouth, she said, a hundred. And for some reason, the civil servant gave her a hundred, an additional, a total of a hundred ration cards. Miraculously now, they had the, the means to continue to support the Jewish families coming and going out of their, their little house. Historians tell us that over a four-year period of time, Corey and her family, they, they saved some 800 Jews from annihilation. Incredible family. But in February of 1944, there was a Dutch informant, a guy by the name of Jan Vogel, who uh, narked him out. And the uh, German Gestapo uh, laid in wait, set a trap on their home. And they sat there all day long watching who came to the, to the, to the uh, little shop and arrested them and took them away and then hid again and arrested them and, and, and took them away. Over the course of the day, they arrested some 30 people in that little house. 
Her entire family was arrested. Casper and Corey and her oldest sister, Betsy, they were all carted off to a, to a local prison. Uh, it didn't take but 10 days and her father died in that horrible prison. And her brother, they were released and that left Corey and Betsy to suffer for the next 10 months. Interesting though, a side little story, there were four Jewish men hiding in their home at the day that the Gestapo uh, uh, set up the trap. And Corey was very, very concerned about them. When they first carted her away to prison, the only thing she wanted to know was what happened to the four guys. Ultimately, the resistance movement got word to her, and this is the, the message that came through. The four watches had all been returned to their owner safely. She knew they got away safely, but they didn't. That is Betsy and Corey. They got transferred to a second Dutch prison, and then ultimately they were brought to the German concentration camp of Ravensbrück. Um, originally, when they first got there, for some reason they held Corey in uh, solitary confinement, but after a, a period of time, she was allowed back into the general population and reunited with her sister, sister Betsy. A, a word about Ravensbrook before we go on with her story. This particular time, at this particular time, there were about 132,000 women being held there. Uh, only 20,000 of them were actually Jews. The rest of them were political prisoners from Holland, from Poland, even from the Soviet Union. Of that 132,000 that were held between 1939 and 1945, about uh, 50,000 of them died in the camp, 2,200 of them in the, in the gas chambers. These women were horrible slave labor in all kinds of industries around that camp. Many of them were subjects or objects of medical experiments. Corey was prisoner 66730. And every time they called her, they called her by that number. Her and her sister Betsy were inseparable. Both of them were spinsters. Uh, for one reason or another, they never married. Uh, apparently, Corey had a, a brief uh, a fling, a, an interest in a guy uh, in her high school years. But after that, uh, she devoted herself to ministries. But she leaned on her sister, Betsy, in some remarkable ways. And God used Betsy to draw out the spiritual strength that Corey was going to need for life. Um, in in uh, Corey's book that I already mentioned, The Hiding Place, she tells all kinds of stories, many of whom focus on how Betsy influenced her, her own uh, growth and development. Um, one of my favorite stories has to do with uh, the Bible study they had. For some reason, they did not catch uh, that Corey and Betsy had a Bible when they brought them into Ravensbrook. And there's no place to hide it uh, in those bunkhouses, but it had not been found. And every evening, very quietly, they would have a small prayer meeting uh, with whoever had an interest in the Bible. But they lived in fear that the guards would come in uh, as they often and would find that Bible. So not much was going on, but, but they were using the Bible in every way they could. 
Um, one moment uh, occurred, and she I'm, I'm going to read right from her story. She Corey says this, We laid uh, struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking, damp straw. Suddenly, I sat up. I struck my head on the cross slats above my bunk. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, this place is swarming with them. Here and there. Well, there's a... Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Betsy replied, Corey, wow, he's already given us the answer before we ask, just like he always does. Then the passage in 1 Thessalonians, to, you know, comfort each other and rejoice always. Thanks, because this is the will of God. So Betsy urged Corey to start giving thanks for everything. But Corey was having great trouble doing so. So Betsy went on. She was praying out loud, thanking him for the, the crowding in the barracks because there was so many more women who could hear the gospel. And then she got to the fleas. She started thanking the Lord for the stinking fleas. Corey says, the fleas, that is too much. There is no way God can make me grateful for fleas. And in her stubbornness, she held her ground. Well, Betsy went on thanking the Lord for the fleas. And then there was a confrontation, a confrontation in the barracks, a time when the guards normally would have been charging in to settle it, but they stayed outside. Betsy could hardly keep the triumph out of her voice as she ran to report it to Corey. It was because of the fleas. They won't come in anymore. And the guards did not come in anymore. And every night, instead of huddling around two or three women, quietly doing a little Bible study, that barracks became a holy ground. The Bible was out, and hundreds of women came to Christ because of the fleas. The fleas that Betsy thanked the Lord for. On another night, uh, Corey and Betsy were awakened by the sounds of the bombs that were dropping in the villages and towns around uh, Ravensbrook. They were both terrified, so they began to pray. At the start, both of them were praying for the, for the Dutch soldiers, um, praying for those who might have been injured and for those that were laying dying, perhaps. But all of a sudden, Betsy shifted and started praying for the Germans. She saw them as an entanglement, as being entangled, rather, of a, of a great evil. And she cared for their souls. And so she began to prevently, or to uh, dramatically pray for their, for their souls. Corey looked at his, her sister in such amazement. And then she, she continued in her own prayers. But now she was whispering. And this is what she said. Well, Lord, listen to Betsy, not me, because I cannot pray for these Germans at all. I love the realism in Corrie Ten Boom's walk. At times when it was just too hard, she prayed that as well. There was a, a story when I first read uh, The Hiding Place that 
that made a, an incredible impact on my mind. Corey was very protective of Betsy and reacted uh, very protectively anytime there was a, a situation. There was one uh, in the in the wintertime as it got colder, they distributed some coats. They weren't very good coats and didn't do a very good job keeping them warm, but, but at least they had them on while they were outside working. And apparently Corey and Betsy, it was their job to level some ground uh, out, outside of the barracks, which meant, you know, heavy lifting. They use a shovel and, and digging and moving the dirt. And, and it was backbreaking kind of work that left both the women with just spasms uh, in, in their legs. Betsy had a particular problem because she had a health condition, something called pernicious anemia something that uh, does permanent damage to, to nerve endings and leaves someone you know, perpetually fatigued and weak. And here she was out doing this, this digging work as a regular part of, of her labor. So one day the guard noticed that she wasn't able to work as fast as everyone else and they began to laugh at her and make fun of her. And uh, it didn't take long for some of the other prisoners to join in and they were laughing. Corey couldn't handle it. She just became so angry. And Betsy saw that her sister was about to lose it. And so she started laughing too, joining in with the guard and saying, you know, you're right. You're accurately describing me. This is how I am. But she went on to say, I, I just can't lift as much as everyone else. And about that time, the guard reached over and slapped her hard across the face, drawing blood. And Corey lost it. She lunged at that young guard. The only thing that saved her from being killed at that moment was her sister's grace. Betsy stepped in, moved her away, smoothed over the situation, and life went on. Once again, that spiritual maturity that God had given Betsy was, was spilling over into the life of her younger sister. The two, the two girls were held at Ravensbrook for 10 months, 10 awful months. Just before Christmas time, Betsy's body couldn't handle it anymore, and she died. In less than uh, 10 days, one of, the, one of the secretaries of the camp came outside, and instead of calling out that number, that was Corey's number, he called her name. It, there was a clerical heir, and she was released. She went home. She went home to the Netherlands. The very first thing she did was open a home for the mentally disabled and a, um, and a resort kind of thing, not resort, I guess maybe a rehabilitation place for, for women who had been in concentration camps. She soon became a very well sought after speaker, traveling to some 60 countries around the world, sharing the love of Jesus. During that time, she wrote a book called The Tramp for the Lord. It's a good read. But everywhere she went, Betsy's focus was that she advocated for reconciliation. She was knighted by the Queen of Holland um, she was recognized by the Jewish Remembrance Authority as a, as a woman who was righteous among the nations. And she actually has a tree planted in her honor and in the garden at the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. I've, I've seen it. 
But this commitment to reconciliation came to a, came to a personal head uh, in, in her life when she was speak, excuse me, speaking uh, in Munich. Let me, let me just read it in her own words, the event that took place. She said, I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray coat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken. I'd come from Holland to the defeated people of Germany with a message that Jesus loves them and that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward through the crowd. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown felt hat, and the next moment I was seeing a blue uniform with a visored cap that had a skull and a crossbone on it. It all came back with such a rush, the huge room with its harsh, glaring lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the corner in the center of the room, and then the shame of walking past that man. I could see my frail sister's body walking in front of me, her ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man, this man that was walking towards me was a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. You, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. He didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for all of the cruel things that I did there, but I would like very much to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, he said, and his hand came out. Will you, will you forgive me? And there I stood, she said, and I couldn't. Betsy had died in that place. How could he erase her slow and terrible death simply for asking? could have been just seconds, but it felt like hours to me that his hand was held out there. I was wrestling in the depths of my soul. I was wrestling with the most difficult thing that I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives us has a prior condition that we should forgive those who have injured us. Corey quoted, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I stood there. I stood still with the coldness still clutching my heart. But forgiveness, she says, is not an emotion. And I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of our will, and our will can function regardless of the temperature of our heart. Jesus, she prayed, help me. 
I, I can lift my hand. I guess I can do that much. You're going to have to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand out to the one that was stretched out to me. And as I did so, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and it raced down my arm and it sprang into our joined hands. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being and it brought tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried with all of my heart. I can't even imagine that kind of a moment. The incredible difficult things that had been a part of her life that brought her to the place where she was standing there sharing the love of Jesus and now having to do it to a man who had cruelly participated in the death of her sister and all of those other people. She had to willfully and with a very full heart choose to forgive someone who had hurt her deeply. I think that brings us to the so what part of our lesson. Here's a sojourner, a woman who came to fully understand her role in this world, looking forward to the next. It definitely took time and an effort. She was not able to just immediately uh, become a spiritual giant. The example of her sister and all the things that God did in her life brought her to the place where Corey was able to forgive. She forgave someone who did not deserve it. She was able to forgive even though she could not forget. She forgave simply because it was the right thing to do. She forgave and it released her to go on living in the grace that God was giving her, regardless of what happened in that guard's life. My friends, maybe there's somebody listening to this story today and it's rang particularly true in your heart that there is someone or someones that you desperately need to forgive. I'll remind you of the passage in Matthew 6 that Corey was quoting. The Bible says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive your trespasses or sins as well. And then the motive for all that's captured in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse number 32. The Bible says to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. And here's the motive. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. So today, maybe this is the moment for you to turn off your computer Go find a quiet spot and sit before the Lord and ask him, who should I forgive? For some, there might be a list. You might need a piece of paper. Write them down. For many, though, there's probably one face, one person that comes immediately to mind. 
want you to call out that person or person's name. Say it out loud. Lord, just as Christ has forgiven me, I forgive them. Remember, you're not seeking uh, resolution. That would require two parties. This is just you. You're not out to get restitution. You're just out to set somebody free. And that somebody is you. Forgiveness. We learn about forgiveness from the life of Corey Ten Boom. Let me pray. Father, take this lesson, I pray. The story of this incredible woman. Bring to our minds and our hearts someone that is, is in need of our forgiveness. Father, help us to have the grace to say the words out loud and mean them in our heart. Give us the grace to forgive today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for coming. It would have been absolutely no fun without you. I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying these um, Sojourner stories and would like to pass them on, just to encourage someone to go to the Apple Podcasts, you can type in my name and they will chronologically pop up. Uh, if you so chose, you could also subscribe and they'd be sent to you on a weekly basis. So God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for coming by.